Welcome back to Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser, and today we are talking best cinematography. It's been a wild, busy, and because of the work stoppages, compressed awards season this year. But we are wrapping up our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards with these special roundup episodes, featuring conversations with the nominees in three important categories, best original score, best sound, and best cinematography. We're releasing these episodes now, right before the official end of Oscars voting, in the hopes that maybe these interviews will make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do a little bit better in your annual Academy Awards office pool. As we do every year, we invited all of the nominees in the category to join us in conversation. Here are the nominees for Best Cinematography in alphabetical order by film. Edward Lockman for El Conde. Rodrigo Prieto for Killers of the Flower Moon. Matthew Libetic for Maestro. Hoyta Van Hoytema for Oppenheimer. And Robbie Ryan for Poor Things. We have four of the five nominees for you today. Unfortunately, because of production schedules, Matthew Libetic wasn't able to join us to discuss his work on Maestro. For this episode, we start with Edward Lockman, who received his third Academy Award nomination for El Conde. This is from episode 183, which we posted earlier this month, as we did for all of the episodes for Best Cinematography. Let's hear from Ed. Well, you know, he was a director. I, I, I saw some of his early films. You know, I think we met, we're trying to remember, it, it was either in at the New York Film Festival or Telluride, but I was so taken that he was this uh, South American director that that always always dealing with the social and political uh, context of his stories about Chile, and it was primarily about the seventies. And you know, he did a film Tony Monero and uh, Postmortem and No, and uh, but he always found a different visual language to tell the story. So he was highly. Uh, aware of how to tell the story that would uh, encompass what the content of the story was. And that, that's, that's always what I gravitate to with the director is that they're trying to find the language and I work with them to find the language of what makes that story unique in itself. And we became friendly and he said to me one day, we only meet each other at like a festival. If I had a film or he had a film and we were at the same festival. He said, you know, one day I'd love to bring you to Chile. But that was like 20 years ago, you know. And and then I was pleasantly surprised. That we did a commercial in, in L.A. And then about a month later, he said, would you come to Chile to shoot this film, this kind of gothic, you know, uh, noir expressionistic, you know, vampire film. And I go, wow, well, yeah. And it's about Pinochet. So how could I not say yes or no? Of course I would say yes. So I went to Chile and, and the remarkable thing, it was all in Spanish. I barely speak a few words of Spanish. I a crew I never worked with. Uh limitations and what equipment I had there, but somehow it all kind of fell into place. You know, once 
it was established that we were going to shoot truly in a monochromatic world, that he got permission from Netflix out of Mexico to shoot monochromatic and not shoot color and then transpose it in the black and white. That set the wheels, you know, like what's the best? We couldn't shoot film. We wanted to shoot on on black and white negative, obviously, um, which I've had some experience with. I'm not there and uh, other projects. But we were very limited, like where we could find the lab for black and white and the expense. So I reached out to um, a, a uh, optical and uh mechanical engineer and cinematographer, a friend of mine, Marco Messenger in, in uh, Stuttgart. And, and I said, uh, Pablo has a, a connection or has always worked with Aerie. You know, I could look into the red monochromatic camera and do tests, but we had to have a lightweight camera for uh, this. He also wanted to always shoot on this. 15 foot techno crane and we built the set around it too. We wanted the fluidity of the shot and, and to find the shot, you know? Um, and, uh, Airy had this XT and the 65 millimeter, but the XT was, was not 4k. It was 2k. And, uh, the requirements of Netflix, was 4k obviously and uh so we were going to shoot with the lf so the question was could they build an lf with a monochromatic sensor and um marco and uh, this contact we had through stefan shank and also the man who actually made it happen in airy was um he, uh, uh, Manfred Yar. And the, I thought it wouldn't happen because they had built, they were building the uh, Alexa 35 and they hadn't come out yet. So I thought, no way are they going to have, you know, time to build a, or put together a black and white sensor in the LF. But lo and behold, like, we, we talked to them two months before, two weeks before I was to shoot. They said they had a camera, that, but I would have to test. And I was pleasantly surprised. It came to Chile, and I immediately started doing tests. And the native ASA, because of the losing the bear pattern for color, I could then shoot about three-quarters of a stop over what they rated it. So if it was... That became 1280. 1280 became 2000. And I easily could shoot 3200 if I wanted. And it had incredible exposure latitude, which also was a great plus. And because a part of the story takes place during the French Revolution, I had the light things from fire and fire gags and at night. And so I really welcome the extra ASA, the extra speed out of the sensor. But the incredible thing, so that was the first thing that I had a black and white sensor, a true black and white sensor for the LF. Then two, 
I had been working with Zero Optics and Alex Nelson in LA, um, who rehouses glass. And he had told me about this glass, the original Baltars, not the super Baltars that were built in the late 50s uh, for reflex cameras. But this was glass that was used for the, it's called the non-reflex or rock over cameras, where the whole movement of the camera would go out, you would have the viewing system, then you'd rack it back and you'd look at it like a range finder, you know. So this glass was originally for the non-reflex camera, and it had a shorter focal length distance from the camera mount to the film plane. So it couldn't be used in reflex cameras. Glass kind of went out of favor because people have been shooting with reflex cameras ever since. And now because of the digital cameras, you have a shorter focal plane distance that now you could use that glass. So now the problem was I had rehoused a set of the original Baltars. And those lenses, what, what, about what year would we be talking about those lenses were, were originally constructed? 1938. Wow. So all the white films in uh, like Magnificent Ambers were shot with this glass. Parts like a one or two lenses, Touch of Evil one or two of the lenses for Citizen Kane, and even the 40 millimeter, because they didn't have that in the um, Super Baltar set, and Willis used in um, The Godfather, the original Godfather. So, um, and the, what was the difference with the glass? Well, that glass was made with lead, you know, which we can't do today, and I think it refractory quality to it. And the coatings were totally different. They were very simple, one-layer coating, and they were hand-polished. So they have fall-off, a little like what the Cook lenses, the Speed Pancros also have, which I bet, but they only cover Super 35. But the fall-off has a wonderful quality to it. You know, it's like now everybody wants to go back to old glass to like do anything to degrade the images that camera manufacturers are making these chips, you know, 4K, 6K, 8K. And then we all want to go the other way to create images that have a texture and a feeling and not make it so analytical. So, uh, he worked with me, Alex Nelson, and we found glass to complement the Baltar glass from the 40 millimeter down. And so it became a 21, uh, uh, 25, a 35, 40, 50, 75, 100, 135, and 152. So he reworked the glass and we found the way that that would complement what was already existing with the Baltar glass that we had. So now I had glass that was made for black and white photography or the glass that was available for black and white photography. Then the third thing was I could now use filters. I could now use black and white filters that I used on 
I'm Not There and, and uh, parts of uh, Wonderstruck and, and you know, to, you know, you, you think you can do the same in post. And I work with Harbor and Joe Goller in, in New York. And, and when I was losing light, I had to pull the filters because you lose stop with, with filters. And we tried to recreate and we could almost get there, but you couldn't go as far as you could go with the filter because the filter marries, if I try to think about it, the flesh tone to the background. And when you just layer it, try to do it later, it's not the same against what you have in the foreground to the background. Many thanks to Edward. Our next nominee is Rodrigo Prieto, whose cinematography on Killers of the Flower Moon brought him his fourth Academy Award nomination. This is from episode 181. You've obviously been working with Scorsese for a while now, and you guys have collaborated on multiple films. I'm kind of curious where the process starts. He's such, he's so renowned for being a visually dynamic storyteller. Uh, and, and so where does that process start for you? Obviously, I'm sure you sit down with a script, but tell me about those initial conversations that you have with Scorsese about how the film is going to look and how that how you start the process of figuring out what your work is going to be. It varies, certainly. And the stories uh, I've worked with, uh, with Scorsese on are very different as well. So uh, every time it is a different way uh, how we approach uh, figuring out the cinematography and the look of a movie. I remember on The Irishman, it all started... A, passing conversation where he said, I mean, I'd like this movie to be like a home movie, but I don't want it to be handheld and grainy. Okay. So how do you do a movie that that's not like that? So then that's exciting for me for, cause then I, I, I have to kind of interpret that in, in this case, I think uh, I was just following along as Scorsese was developing the script because it kept changing or there was a big change as you may know that the original script was more uh, focused on the FBI story and, and Tom White and this and that. So uh, that changed and the perspective and point of view of the story changed. So obviously that was a focus of Scorsese. He was uh, dealing with that, trying to understand that. And all along I was just listening and proposing ideas of how we could, for example, uh, differentiate the, the worldview or visually differentiate between the white folk, uh, the descendants of the Europeans and the Osage, for example, if we even wanted to do that. And, and indeed it is something that Scorsese wanted to, to do. And, uh, so I started looking into still photography of the time and color still photography and, uh, you know, found many images, uh, that were made with this uh, technique to create color that was called autochrome. So that became the basis of the way we see Ernest and Hale and, and the white people, because that color technique is imported from Europe. It's the Lumiere brothers that invented it. So the Osage and their rituals, whenever they're not, uh, let's say, incorporating themselves into the 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 white people's world when they're doing their rituals in their own life say for example molly praying to the sun at dawn that was shot with uh, as naturalistic uh, color as possible so it's a subtle difference but but it's there in the beginning until 
uh, Molly's sister's house, Rita, her house blows up and everyone from then on is in, uh, in hell, let's say. So the look changes. At that point, uh, we used ENR emulation, which uh, has much more contrasty and harsh and desaturated in color. And then there's another look towards the end of the film that's based on three strip Technicolor, which is very colorful uh, because the last scene, Dakota, the movie, the last beat in the radio station happens in the 30s. So the color for that scene is based on on the color of cinema at the time, three-strip technicolor. So in a way, the movie is is um, uh, how stories are told, you know, because we see the newsreel footage in the beginning that we shot with Scorsese's uh, 1917 Bell and Howell camera, you know, and, and, and then we see the photos of the time at the, at the end, we see the, the radio show. So it's, how do we tell stories? So I thought photography was a good way to express that visually. Well, you teed up so many questions that I have for you in, in your, your answer to that question. But I want to follow up on something. You just talked about the sequence with Molly where she's basically, you know, she has that ritual of praying to the light. Um, and I, I, to the sun. And I, I was so struck. It's almost like the sun, I feel, is another character in the film. And it's such a strong motivator for your lighting. Um, I learned that you, you know, you did a lot of preparation and research on Osage culture and rituals. And, and, and I'm kind of curious, could you talk about your research process and their relationship with the sun and how that affected how you wanted to shoot the sun and, and depict the sun in the film? Immediately, I wanted to buy all the books that I could on, on the Osage culture. And I soon discovered there's not almost any literature and, and, and books of, of studies or of the Osage talking about their own rituals. I mean, there are people that had been there, you know, in the 1900s and, and wrote a little bit about it, but not really much. Uh, so it became a matter of asking them right there. And that was a big advantage of being in Oklahoma in or Osage country. So, uh, that was beautiful because, uh, they were very open to helping us in this research. And one of the first things that I remember when we first went uh, to, to start scouting was this dinner where it was a reunion with around 250 Osage. And we sat down with them and chatted and it was a traditional dinner. And, uh, and a lot of the people there stood up and spoke about themselves and their families and their concerns, their worry about what we were going to do, how we were going to depict the Osage. And, and it, it was uh, very interesting. So uh, I saw how Scorsese behaved. He wasn't giving speeches and saying, we're going to do this and that. He was listening. And I think that opened their hearts to, you know, to help us to tell us uh, what they had in their minds. And so I took advantage of that and started asking them many questions. And I learned that, for example, the villages are built in, in relation to the sun, the orientation of the sun. And there's a main street that, that goes east, west. And, and, you know, there's, uh, I don't remember all the details right now, but a lot of it I remember was based on the sun and the sun position and even the rituals, uh, you know, certainly the prayer at dawn, obviously facing the sun. So the sun's important there. Burial happens at, when the sun is at the zenith. So, okay, that's usually a time of day you don't want to shoot as a cinematographer. You want to avoid it. But uh, I thought it was important, you know, to to respect that. And, and so we decided to have the sun in frame. 
in, the, in those moments. And that's why um, precisely there's a scene of, of Molly's mother's burial and the camera's looking straight up at the sky and the sun's at the zenith and we have the, the person who's leading the ceremony with, with a, um, uh, a feather and moving it like that. And the sun's flaring the lens as it moves a feather. And, you know, these were things that we didn't tell him, okay, move the feather like that. It just, that's what he was doing. And it just happened to flare like that, you know. But what we did do is uh, we were very careful. Uh, we knew we were going to shoot anamorphic, but anamorphic flares are usually very modern looking. So Dan Sasaki at Panavision designed, or not designed, but he adapted the T-series anamorphic lenses for us with different coatings so that these flares would be warm instead of blue. And also uh, a little bit of detuning, it's called, of the lenses so they wouldn't be as sharp, you know, um, to have more of a period feel. Uh, so there were, you know, things like that. But that was all based on on what we learned from the Osage. So these are shots that aren't meant to be cool or, you know, just we're honoring, hopefully, their, the way they themselves honor the sun. And also I brought in the sunlight to to light some of these rituals. For example, in the very beginning of the movie, when the, the ceremony of burying the pipe, uh, I knew that these uh, huts had a hole in the top of it, you know, for smoke and all that. And I said, well, maybe we can have the sun coming in through that gap and bouncing off of the ground. And that's what lighting the faces of the people. So the presence of the sun I brought into the interiors uh, like that scene. And then there's another scene in a, a big, you know, get together uh, where Hale is present and Ernest and Molly. Again, I brought the sun into that. You know, it was just a way of of representing their worldview. I love the way you talk about shooting Oklahoma. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you, you talked about the, you know, the, the in, in some ways it was a, it was a gift, but I, I, so I grew up in, in North Texas, not very far away from where you shot the film. And I know that that landscape is very powerful, very austere, uh, but it's also kind of monotonously flat. So I'm curious for you, sort of what that, you know, what did that open up for you? What were the challenges of actually capturing the landscape and how did you address that? Yeah, Scorsese went to Oklahoma before I did, you know, originally. And also a big part of that trip was to speak with the elders and, and basically get permission to tell this story. And, uh, and he came back and he told me that he was just blown away by the scope of these places, these landscapes. And, you know, he wanted to see how we could capture that if, if it was 3D or how to do that. And, uh, and he said, you know, he jokes that he, you know, he's from Manhattan and, and, uh, tenements and that he, he, you know, for him, what's the sun? Where is the sun? He, you know, he's, <laughs> and, and, oh, this is grass. What is this green thing? Grass. Anyway, uh, he's, he's funny about that. But, uh, I knew that I saw some of the photos of the locations. And then, of course, I went, but uh, I knew that. When you're there physically, you feel that size and the sky and all that, but on a two-dimensional screen, you don't capture that, right? So I knew that was a challenge. And certainly the first thing we talked about was anamorphic uh, lenses and the widescreen to be able to incorporate as much as possible in the frame, the horizontal landscape. But uh, I knew that was a challenge. So when we were scouting locations, I tried to find places that had some movement to them and that weren't completely flat to get that sense of depth. And that's cinematography. A big part of it is creating the illusion 
of depth with lighting, but also with composition. And, and when you're photographing a landscape that's pretty flat, that becomes a little tricky. But um, yeah, we did our best, and uh, and I think it's effective because it's uh, besides it's authentic, and and it really I do think puts you in the place, in the real place. Many thanks to Rodrigo. So that brings us to Oppenheimer's cinematographer, Hoyta van Hoytema, with his second Academy Award nomination. This conversation is from episode 179. One of the things I find fascinating about this film is, is how you and, and Christopher Nolan are, uh, you, you have such contrast of scale. You have, you know, you built the town of Los Alamos. You, you staged the first atomic explosion, but the film starts and ends with close-ups. As you say, there's so much dialogue there's so many close-ups in the film. And then a, a huge a huge portion of the film takes place in this hearing space, which is described in, in, in the film as a, a shabby little room far from the limelight. Uh, I want to talk about that room for a second because so much of the film takes place in there. And I, I can imagine, you know, it's, you've got characters against a blank white wall. Like, <laughs> how did you approach knowing how much of the film is going to happen in that hearing space? making it visually interesting and, 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 and uh, having it sit within the rest of the film. I was scared shitless in the beginning because, 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 you, because you, you know, you are very much out of your comfort zone, you know, um, in the old days when in doubt, you know, uh, throw in a wide shot, you know, throw in a vista and give the people breathing space, etc. But this was full on very um, intense uh, on the human face all the time. Um, uh, so there was a challenge, uh, but also I think a very fun one. It definitely um, brings you to sort of a state of mind where you have to really uh, start to focus on what is being said, you know, and on the and on the progression of the story and where you are in the story in time. Um, you know, you, you 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 have to rely on that, and then you know, in a way, you have to sort of uh, put yourself into sort of that hypersensitive mode where you, uh, you know, where you enslave your uh, your work um, as much to that principle to empower those words very much. You know. Mm -hmm. um, I always, I always have the feeling that, that that with this film, sort of the the power of the close-up or, or the 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 way uh, how interesting those close-ups are, they were very much reliant on where those were placed in the story, and then where you were as an audience in your story, and with that also what we as an audience project into those faces. You know, you look you 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 look into those eyes and you you see an expression and you see a state of mind, but very often what sort of happens behind uh, somebody's eyes, inside somebody's head is much more interesting and, and sort of the will to, to, to grasp that or to grapple or to stay on par with the thought process of a character. It's, it's a very powerful motor and it's very um, interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's a very big element in, it's to keep you in a way interested as an audience. So, so that became very much sort of, you know, almost a, you know, you know, sort of a beacon of light for the cinematography as well. You know, mm. where are we in the story? What is he thinking? And what do we want to think when we look at his face? You know, yeah. Um, as well as you know, 
I always like to say, you know, in this film, our faces became our landscapes. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't re rely on the, on the whiteness. So, you know, I did very hard my best to make those faces as interesting as possible to look at, you know. Probably one of the challenges for you on this film was the fact that you were going to finish it completely photochemically. You were going to cut negative. You know, everything uh, had to had to happen in an, in an optical and, and photochemical process. Was that, I mean, how, I, I can only imagine what that must have posed for you in terms of the challenge of not having any of the digital tools to, to, to lean on, uh, with, especially with a shoot as complex as this. Can you talk about that? alleged beauty or uh, power of this film very much comes from that choice. Um, <clears throat> I think the fact that we kept things very much in an analog space was very crucial to, to I think, our human connection with the story and our human connection with, for instance, the physics in the story as well, you know, the tangible physics. Um, uh, I, I very often, you know, I, I very often believe that, you know, digital tools are very often grabbed just just because they are more convenient you know uh but they're not necessarily better you know they're not necessarily uh uh more uh speaking or more soulful or carry carry more weight than for instance uh physical effects or you know uh light project on analog film so, so in a way, I just had the feeling that if we can sort of handle to uh, step away from the more comfortable way of doing it and just trying to stick to our guns and, 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 and try to be as pure as possible, that somehow this will start speaking to an audience as well, you know. So, so it's not really done from some sort of a place of self-indulgement or the fact that we sort of created rules for ourselves because... It, it is not a rule for ourselves. It's just literally that we purely always try to choose what we think looks the best and works the best. You talked about practical effects, and uh, I, I want to ask about that because one of the things that I found so fascinating, I had the opportunity to sit down with a sound team, and we talked a lot about about how the sound uh, was critical in getting inside the mind of J. Robert Oppenheimer. But I think visually you're doing that too. He seems to have the ability to see quantum physics. So you have a number of practical gags that you do in the film to kind of communicate that. Um, and I love the way, you know, as he gets, you know, in these moments when he gets very tense and upset, you know, what you do with the backgrounds. Can you talk about the development of the look of those those particular sequences and the practicality of how you accomplish them? Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, this is kind of a continuation of what we started to talk about, about, you know, um, keeping close-ups interesting and, you know, project what what we project on faces is also you know there's an offering in this film in which we sometimes get to to peek uh, into somebody's mind right and 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 it was for us very important that we felt that kind of excess from time to time or that we at least felt from time to time that we had you know did we got some sort of insight on how he started to perceive the world and also how the world around him was slowly changing. 
So, so you know, we 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 use a lot of different you know uh, tool, tools to uh, to try to achieve that, and and one of those tools is of course those 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 physics visions that were very much uh, done with the help of uh, Andrew Jackson, brilliant visual effects supervisor, and Scott Fisher, who who had designed all kind of physics experiments for us, you know, that and 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 endlessly kept filming like particles smashing into each other or things um, uh, next to the set. But 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 all these all these effects, they were all based on sort of, uh, yeah, physical, uh, phys physical experiments. And we would watch them uh, in dailies every day after the sh after the shoot. And, and 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 so we also allowed ourselves to get some sort of a an idea of uh, or a visualization of 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 of, of the, the 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 essential physics in the, in 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 the film, and then there's these moments that you describe uh, in which we see the background, for instance, behind him changing. You know, um, the scintillation of the of the matter. You know, uh, that realization that you know for him uh, the world is not uh, built out of solid matter, but it's built out of waves and wavelengths and scintillating uh, uh, free frequencies. Um, so, you know, uh, together with Andrew Jackson, we came up with uh, ways to do that as well, which you, which you see in the film here and there. Thank you, Hoyta. Our final film in alphabetical order, nominated for Best Cinematography, is Poor Things. This is director of photography Robbie Ryan's second Academy Award nomination, both of which he earned for his work with director Yorgos Lanthimos. His previous nomination was for their collaboration on the film The Favorite. This conversation with Robbie comes from episode 182. You know, that first 10 minutes, you're not only establishing the characters and the situation, but the mood and the tone. But importantly, you're, you're also really letting them know what's the cinematic language that you're going to be using to tell this story. And what you're doing in Poor Things is so stylized and dramatic. Uh, I'd love to just talk about how you and, and Yorgos Lanthimos talked about that first, that first chunk of the film and what you needed the audience to kind of take away from that and then how that affected the visual style. Well, with Yorgos, he wouldn't necessarily talk to that level about it. He would talk about the, the whole film and it's sort of like approach aesthetically as a whole, you know, it's not kind of something where we go, okay, we're going to talk about the first chunk, but what he did change up a lot of the, at the beginning of the film was that he hadn't chosen to do it in black and white until quite late in the process. And he was, remember, I remember like two or three weeks before we started filming us, oh, I think we might try and extend the black, make a black and white beginning to the film. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I was like, yeah, all right, that's great. But then from the production designer's perspective, it was a little bit more, oh, okay, that wasn't part of what they thought about. So, you know, he, he's quite intuitive and, um, um, I was, you know, he, he likes to kind of feel how it's all working out. So it's, it's a really nice environment to be in because it's not like, you know, this is the way it has to be. This is what we're doing. With Yorgos, it's a bit more like, let's get some ingredients, let's get tools and let's, you know, pare them down to what we think is going to be the right, you know, choices. And then we'll, um, we'll move on from there. And that is very much the approach the whole film took then. We, we did a lot of testing at the beginning because um, we had a long process of preparation for the film. I was in there, I was in Hungary for like 12 weeks, which is for me quite a, you know, long process. So I was 
um, able to use that time to do a lot of camera lens testing with Yorgos. And that was great fun. We, we kind of got it down to, you know, a, a finite amount of lenses for the film because he didn't want to have too many lenses. He's really good at, like, you know, paring it down. Um, but as a visual aesthetic from the beginning, you know, uh, the world building in Poor Things is sort of, it's all in the script in a way, you know, so it, it's, it, it sets off on a, on a path. Like, the, the thing he said he was going to do because of obviously being black and white in the whole entire beginning of the film meant that he scared the producers a little bit or the, the financiers a tiny bit. So he, I remember him coming back from a phone call with uh, Searchlight um, saying it all went well. He just uh, he, All you have to do is have a little bit of colour at the very beginning, which is the shot you see at the very beginning of the film. Actually, there's some titles as well which are in colour, but the very beginning of the film is um, Bella. on. Or it's actually Victoria, spoiler alert. On the um, on, <laughs> good point, on, on, a bridge, yes. on a bridge, and she sort of falls off the bridge, and um, that was like, if we have a bit of color there to start, that means we're okay because when the rest of the next half an hour is in black and white, people remember there was a bit of color to start. Um, so that was, you know, there there are things that we we were consciously doing, and um, you know, from there on in, yeah, like we we were prepared, we we worked, tested, and then we kind of got shooting, and that was a. That was the language, and that's the way we went forward. But that must have been quite a curveball to switch to black and white so shortly before you started photography, because you you were also shooting on you were capturing on thirty five neg, right? So did that mean did you cap so you captured on on black and white stock? Yeah, yeah, everything. Yorgos is a uh, he he hasn't shot on digital since the Lobster. He uh, he he kind of went way off film uh, digital shooting on the Lobster, and he he's a huge advocate of shooting on celluloid, as I am myself, and that's I think why we we connect because we both love filming on film. And um, I think uh, yeah, we shot on black and white negative, and we shot on color negative, and we shot on ectochrome uh, reversal stock. So you know. It, it, the black and white thing was always in the mix because there's the chapter headings that are in the film where they were always going to be in black and white. Um, and then he sort of went, I really want to try more of this because he, he he loves shooting black and white stills as well. So I think he just wanted an approach uh, with this one to... Obviously, he, he intuitively thought this would be a good way to begin the film because obviously her world goes into this crazy new place and, you know... Uh, it's a good transition and uh, it rubber stamps it. What I love about um, this is that usually in a film, it's color and the flashbacks are black and white, but in this, the film is in black and white and the flashbacks are in color. And then it goes into, you know, another journey and another special, uh, like, you know, explosion of color when she goes to Lisbon. So, yeah, the, the thing was we shot the the, um, the flashbacks, which is the reanimation scene on Ectochrome Vista Vision. So that was very exciting. I want to get into that um, and, and dive a little bit more into that. But before we do, I think for, for our audience who might not um, necessarily know what that means, what's the, tell, so what's the difference between um, color negative and then, and then Ectochrome? Well, Ectochrome is, uh, the easiest way to explain it is it's like, you remember you used to get slide film uh, and watch it on a, at home, well, if you're a certain generation, you'd get like a little kind of the carousel slide film. So that's, that's a positive bit of film. So you, when you took that picture or whoever took that picture, they got it back in the slide meant that the film in the camera was not a negative. It was a positive. So, um, that is what we were filming. What it, that is what ectochrome is. It's a, it's a, you're filming. If you looked at your strip of like film, it's all 
positive images instead of negative images. And, um, you know, it's it, by inherently, it's more contrasty, it's more colorful. And uh, it's exactly what Jorgos likes in his cinematography, really, because it's, it's something he leans toward a lot in, in grading is to go a bit more contrasty. So I think um, uh, that was something he was really keen to test out. And he'd been in tune with uh, Marcel Rev, who was shooting Euphoria, uh, a TV show, and he, he'd got Kodak to um, cut 35 mil neg sorry, 35 mil uh, positive of what Kodak originally reissued with this stock because it was a reissued stock, which was on 16 mil and only on 16 mil. But then Marcel got them to cut it to 35. We got some of that and we were able to get more of it off Kodak as 35 mil. But the thing with Marcel's stuff is that he only processed it as cross-process because in, in the genius of Kodak, they've reissued this stock that can't actually be processed it can only be processed in maybe two labs in the whole world. So luckily there was a lab in Berlin, which processed for us. And they, they were great people called Andek. And there's a guy called Ludwig in there who was very, uh, very good with us. And he was able to do really nice uh, E6 processing because that's the different process you do. Um, and it looked great. We loved it. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a really fortuitous place to be filming. You said the reanimation sequence, which immediately stood out to me in terms of its contrast, just the inkiness of the blacks and the vibrancy of the colors. Uh, were there other key sequences that you shot in Ektachrome? We, we were kind of saying that we'd shoot all the exteriors on Ektachrome. So all the Lisbon exteriors are Ektachrome. The ship exteriors are on Ektachrome. Paris exteriors are Ektachrome. Anywhere where we could kind of, because it's a very slow film stock. So anywhere that we had a bit of exposure that we could, you know, get it achieved would be, um, sort of what we thought of, but we we shot the reanimation scene on it, and that was where the the, hit, the story when it goes if it's dark, it might not be retrievable. So that was an extra bit of pressure on me. I was like, oh, and the lenses sometimes we were shooting were a little bit slower, so the reanimation scene needed a lot of light. But I remember that coming back a bit dark, and I was like really nervous about it. And York was, was like, yeah, it's a bit dark, but we'll be okay. And uh, it was, it was okay. <laughs> But, so I learned a lot about using it and, you know, the results really were, they, they zinged, you know, they, they came back really, yeah. really different and exciting. And I think it informed the, the grade of the rest of the color footage, you know, because you have this as a kind of a, a placeholder or as such. And it's like, okay, that's really, that's the way we like to look of it. Let's swing everything a bit that way, you know? Yeah. And we had a, we had a great grader called Greg Fisher in Company 3 who, who did all the work and he, he – um, did a magical job on that. You said that um, you shot the exteriors on Ektachrome, but every, all your exteriors were actually on soundstage, right? So you're still having That's to right. pump a lot of light <laughs> through there. Yeah, well, but with the, 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 the approach we made with the film was that I, the approach Jorgos, from what I learned doing the favorite with him, is that he uses obviously uh, quite wide lenses on his film, so he doesn't really like film lights on set. So we always approach, well, since that favorite onto poor things the approach was let's have a, a source of light from outside the building that lights through these windows and that will give us enough ambience inside with including practical lights inside that we can kind of use without having to have any other film lights anywhere so this that, that sort of like made it simpler for me in the studio aesthetic because i just built big skies and uh, we got a lot of lights um and they they created the, the ambience that was what was needed and it but it was a simple approach instead of being very complex it was quite simple 
from from a an ideas point of view, the logistics of it that took a little bit more, like a lot of rigging and the the gaffers and the rigging gaffers did an amazing job. It always been one step ahead because we had six sound stages going one after the other, you know, um, which was totally different to what I've ever done. Like I, I I'm so used to going into a location and having a couple of redheads. <laughs> so you know. Uh, both all of all of us that on the crew were quite new to the, the the scale of this, so it was it was a. I always felt it was a bit like a campus where we were all like, "How's your day going?" And um, you know, I think it, it worked out great. Many thanks to Robbie, and that concludes our special roundup episode with the nominees for best cinematography for the twenty twenty four Academy Awards. As I mentioned up top, we have links to each of these full length conversations in our show notes. Be sure to check out our other Roundup episodes with the nominees for Best Original Score and Best Sound, as well as even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories. The best way to do that is to be subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information on all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator, is Karen Marroquin. Thanks for joining us.